So, this series, um, as we've talked about water portraits and looking at baptism and, and water in the New Testament, um, the, the goal for me in this series is that we can take all that we know about baptism, all that we've learned through the years, put it back in a box, and then reopen that box and look at it anew, maybe like we're seeing it for the first time again. Because it's one of those things, I think, as we talk about so often, it becomes so familiar to us. We miss the significance and the larger meaning of it. And what we said last week, and if you weren't here, um, you can go onto our website and you can find that message. I would love for you to see that, um, because it really is the beginning point of this series. But through this series, what we want to say is that there is a pattern that you see unfolding through Scripture, through the Old Testament and through the New Testament, of this idea through the water into new life. And that is the, the crux of this series. That is the core of this series. And so last week we said that baptism is not the goal. It never has been the goal. God's goal for His people and his redemptive purpose in the world has always been about life change and about transformation. And transforming this world through the people that he is transforming and changing. And so as we look back at this series, my hope is that we can open this topic back up again and look at it for a new, maybe for the first time. Because here's, here's the thing, as we grow older, generationally. Each generation has the responsibility to figure out what the new language looks like in the new culture and the new context we find ourselves in. The message not necessarily changes, but the way that we talk about it and the way that we communicate it has to change along with the culture that we live in. And again, it's not to change the message in what we're saying, but it is to change the way that we say it. So as we begin in this series, and today I want to talk about um, a passage in 1 Peter. Because we're trying to look at these storylines throughout the Old Testament that connect to these passages beautifully in the New Testament. And that the writers draw upon for this rich history. But it seems like we have inadvertently created a culture of salvation. And, and for many of you, you hear that word, a salvation culture, and you think, well, that's, that's a really good thing. That's, but, but real quickly, what is a salvation culture? A salvation culture is a culture that is consumed with individual salvations. And it asks the question, are you saved? And have you made the decision? And do you understand that Jesus loves you? And it is consumed with this idea that you've got to get across the line. You've got to make the decision, and we'll say it like this, this is the most important decision you'll ever make. And while I would agree it's an important decision, I don't know that it's any more important than the decision you make every other day for the rest of your life to get up and submit your life to Christ Jesus as Lord and follow Him with everything that you have. It's all important. It's always important that it consumes everything about us. 
And if, here's the problem. If we create a salvation culture, we will probably never have a discipleship culture. And if you fail to create a discipleship culture, eventually you'll look up and you'll say, well, well where did everyone go? But if you will create a discipleship culture, and you will focus on building that culture, salvations will follow. If you focus on building a culture of discipleship, people will be saved. People will submit their life to Christ. And these questions that we ask, I think, are so prevalent and pointing towards the salvation culture. We ask the question, well, are you, are you saved? We ask the question, well, do you have to be baptized to be saved? And we ask the question, well, when are you saved? Is it when you say a prayer? Is it when you have faith? Is it when you are baptized and when you go into the water? Is it when you come out of the water? Is it when the Spirit fills you? When is it? At what point? And we, for so long, we have argued and we have fought about those questions. And I, if I'm just real honest, a lot of times it feels like those questions we argue, fight, and debate about the argue, fighting, and debating comes from a place of fear and self-righteousness more than it does a concern for the kingdom of God. And I think it's the way it comes across to the rest of the world listening to us as well. These questions are important. But I think there's a better way to ask the question. Or maybe I should say there's just a better question. Because the question that we ask is so consumed with what people know when they make a decision to be baptized. And the focus isn't on what God does to us through that baptism. And we ask, like, well, well, do you have to be baptized? Or when are you? Maybe, maybe the better question we could ask is, well, why do you ask? Why do you even ask that question? And why do we argue? There's, there's this pattern that unfolds. Um, we see it real clearly in the New Testament because it talks about it, um, I think, really overtly. But we see it through the Old Testament as well. There's, there's this pattern that unfolds of faith and repentance and baptism and God's Spirit and divine community and mission that, that seems to go all Throughout the pages of Scripture, you look at the, the Exodus and through the Red Sea. Can you go to the next slide? Faith, repentance, th this idea of turning, walking through the water and into new life, being filled with God's Spirit as they find themselves in this new land, as God's divine community, living life together on a mission, headed somewhere. And you see it through things like the, the events like the flood and the Red Sea crossing and crossing the Jordan, carrying over into the New Testament in this pattern that, that is so important. 
And, and the reason, I guess, I, I ask, well, why do you ask those questions? Here, here's the thing. If we believe that Jesus Christ is Savior of the world and Lord of everything, then are we consumed with submitting our life to him and being formed and made in his image and being filled with his spirit and living our life on mission? Like if we're consumed with that, then why do we worry about that little question like, okay, well, what's the actual point? When's the line? Why don't we argue over that? I mean, if we, we know that in the water, God's Spirit's going to fill us. And that's the divine promise that we're going to be part of this divine community. Then, then don't you want that? Because it seems to me the New Testament is far, far more concerned with this life and how we live here and now than it is the afterlife. And our focus in baptism has always been on the afterlife and how we get from here to there. But God is so consumed with his people being people who are transformed by his spirit and made alive and a part of this new community that is filling and bringing his presence to this world. That's the, the, the focus of the New Testament. That's the focus of what God is doing and moving in this world. We've become so consumed and focused in on saving ourselves. And I think it's interesting. In Matthew, Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. We're so consumed with saving ourselves that we've lost sight that it's always been about us submitting all we have to Jesus and having faith that only He can save us. And that we're going to surrender all we have to follow Him and be like Him, to be a part of this divine community filled with His Spirit, living life on mission to make this community of disciples that comes alive that's called the church. I don't know about you, but that seems to be a different story than the story I was fed growing up as a child. And, and I don't know that it was necessarily wrong. It just seems, now that I look at it, it seems so incomplete. That, that I, I had this, this idea that baptism was about this one singular function of forgiving my sins and getting me out of hell and into heaven. The picture is so much bigger and more beautiful than I ever imagined. In the book of 1 Peter, he is encouraging a group of Christians who are facing extreme persecution under the Roman government. And a Caesar at the time named Nero is wreaking havoc over their lives. And he begins to encourage them with these words saying, I want you to live together in unity and love each other 
and I don't want you to repay evil with evil. And I want you to remember that Jesus is, is the divine and he's king over all the world. And that you need to remember that you always have to be able to give a reason for the hope that you have. But you do that with this gentleness and love and respect for other people. And then he goes on to say this in verse 17. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And he says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God. And he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, and it is God's, as at God's right hand, with the angels' authorities and powers in submission to him. So when he talks to these people who are suffering and going through persecution and facing difficulties, the very first thing he tells them is understand you as this divine community who are suffering and going through difficult times that Jesus suffered and went through difficult times as well. He is connecting them to Christ, making sure they get the picture that that you suffer and Christ suffered. And if you're going to be a part of Christ's community, then you are going to suffer like he did. And if you remember back to last week, we talked about in Jesus' baptism, that Jesus walking into the water was also not only committing to the water, he was also committing to the cross. Because what the, the water and what the baptism for Jesus represented was his death, burial, and resurrection. And so by Jesus committing to the water, he was also committing to the cross. And as you make a decision to follow Jesus, you are not only committing to the water, you are also committing to the cross. I mean, you remember how, how, what Jesus says right after. If, if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you want to lose your life for my sake, you're going to find it. But right there with that, he says, that if you want to be my disciple, it's the verse right before, if you want to be my disciple, you must take up your cross and follow me. And it's not some pretty little hey, you're going to struggle and you're going to go through and it's going to be tough to stay off the internet and that's your cross to bear. Like in this culture, when Jesus is saying it, it is literally, do you want to follow me? Do Do I mean enough to you? Because we might walk out this door and we might walk right up to the top of this hill and we might be put on a cross and be crucified. Do you want to follow me? Do I mean that much to you? Do you really want to surrender everything to follow me? 
Because it's not just about the life and the afterlife to come. It's about right here and right now surrendering and crucifying the old you and being born again as this new creation, a part of a divine community. And because of that, you will be different from this world and you will face difficult times and hardships. Get ready for it. Christ did it too. You were put to death in the body but made alive in the Spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, and he connects it to the imprisoned spirits with Noah. But the question is, okay, what's the proclamation he makes? And the the key is down at the end of verse 22. It's Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with the angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. What is the proclamation? That Jesus Christ is Lord of all the earth and everything on the earth, in the earth, under the earth, stands in submission to him. Or maybe we could better say bows in submission to him. As John the Revelator writes, the kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of our God and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. That, that was the message in connecting the people to Christ and grounding them not just in Jesus for eternity, but in Jesus for right now that we would submit everything we have to be like him and follow him. And he connects it to the story, the story that, that probably everyone in our culture today has heard of, whether they know about Jesus or not, and it's the story of Noah. The story of a guy who builds an ark, who God says, go build an ark. Because it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And you're going to take your family and you're going to go and live on the ark. But here's what leads to Noah building the ark. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth. And that every inclination of their thoughts The thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Again, this this is that idea that we've talked about throughout east of Eden, continuing to move away from the presence of God. Sin. God is saying, I want my creation to be stewarded in this direction. And man says, I'm going to steward it in this direction. I I want my good creation to go this way. And man says, I'm going to take your good creation. I'm going to go this way. Constantly over and over and over again. And in doing so, breaking down the relationship between God and man, but also man and man. And woman and woman. And man and woman, fracture, splintered, broken apart. And so he's talking to this church, and he's saying, remember, you are different than everyone else. 
Why do you argue and fight and complain? You are different. You're called out. You're this divine community that's moving together on mission. And here's the only thing I can figure, guys. Like, if we have too much time to argue and complain and fight about some of these little issues, it's because we're not living out the mission that we've been called to, which is a much bigger issue. We're not literally going into all the world and making disciples of the nations. And when we lose sight of that vision and that mission and completely be consumed by us and our interest and what we want, then we fail to be the church. We simply become another organization that's doing some good things. But Jesus has set us apart and formed us into this divine community for a purpose. And so he goes on to say this about Noah's flood. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. He, he, He says that they were saved in this ark as they went through the water. And then he goes on, it sounds like he almost contradicts what we said last week. Last week we said, it's not baptism, it's not the water that saves us. It's Jesus Christ's death on the cross that saves us. But then he goes on and he says, well, it's this baptism that now saves you. And he says that. But he goes on to clarify what he means by that. Not the removal of dirt from the body. Not not this removal for for centuries. You go back to Leviticus, and there's so many water rituals, ritual baths and ritual washing for the Levitical priests. And it was all about being clean on the outside. They convinced Jesus. They're they're convinced that Jesus is sinning because he's not doing this. He's not washing like he should or like they think he should. It's not the removal of dirt from the body. This is about something different. This is about cleaning, not just the outside, but the inside as well. It's about cleaning everything and making it pure and holy and cleansing it through the washing of water. But for the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. This pledge, this promise... That God, I'm going to surrender everything I have. Some versions say plead, like this idea of a prayer. Begging and pleading God. And other versions will say it's a pledge. Like a covenant, like a promise. Like God, I'm I'm in this with you. And and there's a lot of debate what that word actually means. Because it's not, it's the only time it's ever used in the New Testament. But, But I don't know that it really matters. Because whether it's a prayer, God... Please cleanse me. Or it's this promise and pledge that, God, I'm surrendering everything to you. I think I want it to be both. I think I want it to be both. It's this 
pledge of a clear conscience towards God. And he says this, it saves you, and it is referring back to baptism. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because remember back to last week, Jesus' baptism was foreshadowing his death, burial, and resurrection. And then Paul comes along and he says, your baptism is you entering into Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So it's this, this baptism that saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with the angels, authorities, and powers surrendered to him? Peter says in, in chapter 1, verse 3, that Cash read so well a few minutes ago. It is his great mercy that has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That it's not the water that has the saving power, but it's through the grace of Jesus Christ by the power of God at work in the world that you are saved through the water. It was in the flood that God cleansed the world, that he created and gave Noah a new start by recreating the world through the water. And Peter simply says, and what he's connecting here to is Jesus is the ark. Just as Noah built this ark and it provided safe passage into this new world, Jesus Christ is the ark. And you enter into him and he will protect you through the water as you die or buried and raised again. And on the other side, God's Spirit will fill your life. You will be a part of this new divine community that did not exist moments before for you. And that you will be given this mission of God to go into all the world. So in the story of Noah, it was water that judged the old world and cleansed it. In ours, it's baptism that judges our old world and cleanses it. Because the water and baptism is a place of cleansing, submission, and transformation. That God, through it, is cleansing us and making us whole before Him. We are submitting our life to him as king and lord over all the earth, as everyone else and everything else, every spirit has done. And being transformed by his spirit into this new creation that is transforming the world we are a part of now. And so I just ask that question again. So, so why do you ask? I mean, when we really get down to it, 
does it really matter exactly what point it is that you're saved? If rather you're consumed with being his disciple. If you're consumed like being like the, the church and a part of this pattern. I think the bigger question is, do you, do you fully trust Jesus with your life? Well, then, then yes, then repentant, faith and repentance and baptism and God's Spirit and this new divine community and mission is just a part of your life. I mean, because, well, I mean, seriously, like, do you just want to be saved? I mean, do you just want to get out of this safely and be somewhere else? Or do you really want to be a part of what God is doing in this world? Because if we want to be a part of what he's doing in this world, then it makes sense that we would do what he tells us to do. I mean, you go to the New Testament, they don't ask the question. You don't see that argument and debate in the New Testament. You just see people who say, well, if that's what Jesus did, and that's what the disciples did, and that's what the apostles then." then we're going to go do that. We're going to go get in the water and we're going to walk into this new world and into this new life as disciples of Jesus who are living life as a part of this community on mission to bring Jesus into this world. That's what we want to do. We want that to consume us. We want His cross to define our life. We want to be different and set apart from everyone else. We want people to know that Jesus is Lord and that he is the only hope of this world. Like, you want that. Is that your hope? Or is it just, well, I, someone told me one time, like, I was going to go to hell, and if I didn't believe in Jesus, then I had to go get in the water, and then I'd be saved when I die. It's so much bigger than that. It's so much more beautiful than that. Why reduce it to this simplistic idea? Let Jesus fill you and change you. I want to talk for just a second about this discipleship culture and this, this shift that we've got to make as a church moving forward. Because something you'll notice if you ever look around, and it, it's not as true here, but there is truth in it. Across our nation, 78% of believers are age 40 and above. Let that sink in for a second. But we said earlier, if you create a salvation culture, you probably won't get a discipleship culture. And one day, you'll look up and say, well, where, where did everyone go? But if we will create a discipleship culture, then we will see salvations. But the way that we do that there's got to be a shift in our focus to one-on-one -on -one discipleship. In, in 1960s, 70s, 80s, there was this beautiful idea, amazing idea, 
we're going to get a bus. We're going to call it a joy bus. And we're going to drive around the neighborhoods. We're going to go knock on a door. And we're going to tell people, hey, our church is going to have a VBS next week. Is it okay if we come pick up your kids? We're going to put them on this bus. We're going to drive them across town. We're going to take them into our church building. We're going to feed them. We're going to take care. They'll be, don't worry about it. They'll be okay. We're not going to do anything wrong to them. And then we'll bring them back after we taught them about Jesus. And we'll deliver them safe and sound to your door. That was amazing. Let me ask a question. Parents, 2019, someone comes and knocks on your door. Hey, we're from a church across town. We're going to pick up your kid next week. We're going to put them on this bus. We're going to drive them across town to a church you've never seen or heard of. We're going to take care of them. It's okay. We won't do anything wrong to them. We're going to teach them about Jesus, and then we're going to bring them back safe and sound. Here's my point. That doesn't work today. There's too much other baggage with that. That's not at all saying it was a bad thing when it was done. It was a very good thing at the time. But now, times call for something different. And we cannot confuse our strategy with our mission. The strategy and the way that we reach people has to and always will change. The mission must never change. But I will tell you, there is one that cuts through all generations as long as you can remember. And it's simply one-on-one discipleship. It's you going next door in your neighborhood, next door to the cubicle next to you, next door at the baseball field and the people you play and coach with, next door wherever you find yourself. And being Jesus and through his spirit being able to speak into people's lives, that has never changed. And that is what, at the core, discipleship looks like. So, I want to start something today. And in your order of worship, your prayer card for this month. And on the the bottom of the front of it, there's a question. Who is your one? And here's what I want you to do and listen, don't, don't start writing or doing anything like that. Over the next week, I want you to begin thinking about one person God has placed in your life who does not know him. Who you have the opportunity to influence, love, and impact for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to begin praying for that person. 
and write their name down and begin praying for them every day. That God would give you opportunities and open doors for you to share Jesus with that person. And just want to ask this question. Can you imagine if for one year, as a church, every single person here was consumed with the one person they had written on this card. And they prayed for them every single day, and they took opportunities to love them and care for them and to share Jesus with them. How different our church might look 365 days from now. Could you imagine what would happen? Because this baptism that you entered into was so much bigger than just getting out of here to somewhere else. It was to be a part of that mission. And so often we lose sight of that mission. And we lose that focus because the goal has never been about getting people baptized. The goal has always been about God transforming. And one of the places that God transforms us, (coughs) excuse me, transforms us the most is through the water. As he leads us through the water into new life. Father, today um, we pray that your spirit, Father, would be so powerful in this place. Father, I begin to pray right now for each and every single person's name that will be written down. Not not as as it were someone we're going after, but just someone we believe, God, you are giving us the opportunity to love and pray for and share with. Father, may you open doors, may you tear down the barriers the walls. May you begin working on their heart right now. But Father, more importantly, can you begin working on our hearts? Because we're so used to doing things the way we've always done them. Because we're comfortable with them. And we're comfortable keeping to ourselves. And so Father, I begin beg today begin to tear down the barriers. Begin to tear down the walls within our hearts. That we may see and love people as you do. And Father, may we see the opportunities that you present us every day to love and care for those who do not know you. Father, because we believe you are the hope of the world and that your word has the power to bring light into darkness. And so, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Father, shine your light into this darkness and give hope to this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.